Welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. Cynthia Hyatt is a Christian psychotherapist specializing in trauma therapy, couples, relationships, and personal development. She is passionate about your life and is here to encourage, teach, and inspire you to be your own best version. Find her online at CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. Now, with today's fresh insights, Cynthia Hyatt. Well, welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host, and I'm so glad that you are joining me and that you are able to take some time and listen today. And so if you're listening on a podcast, that's awesome. It's nice to be able to stop it and start it. And I always want to encourage you that if you can't find me on your favorite podcast server, you can email me and let me know what that is. And we'll see about getting Amy to put it on that, that particular server. So thanks again for being here, and I wanted to share a little bit of the book I wrote a couple of years ago, and it is called God Wants You Truly Living, Not Walking Dead, and it's pretty much the impetus of just the calling on my life and what I teach people and what is so meaningful to me and what God has done through me, and that again is that God wants you truly living, not walking dead. And I know you can relate to that because I, I can relate to it. That's part of why God laid it on my heart to write it. And so this, I want to start with this really important thing. And this is that God has a life beyond your wildest dreams. So let's start with this. This is chapter one. And it says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And that's Acts chapter 1, verse 3. See, God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request, even in your wildest dreams. And he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply, gently within us. And that's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 out of the Message Bible. And John chapter 10, 10 out of the Amplified Bible says, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance. So what is life? More specifically, what is ideal life? An abundant one. One that fits and works and satisfies. Even when the world around us is going haywire, as it so often is, what does a life look like? What does that kind of life even look like? See, one of the most remarkable things about the most abundant life that was ever lived, by our perfect example, Jesus Christ, is that most of us would say that except for his last few years, it was quite unremarkable. He was a carpenter from a poor town, and nothing about that screams abundant. So more than that, even the most notable years of Jesus' life the ones written about weren't something most people would desire. Jesus had little or no wealth that he held on to and was usually traveling through highly undesirable places such as Samaria, no less. He was often tired, surrounded by crowds and expected to speak and heal and feed people. People whined to him, belittled him, battled him, turned on him. But at least he had his health, that is until he was led away to be beaten, crucified, and killed 
by means of one of the, one of the most horrific deaths practiced in all of history. No, on the outside, people wouldn't consider Jesus' life to be particularly abundant. Many of us would not, we would probably say the same about our own. Yet, if Jesus was sent from God, presumably not only to save us from death, but to teach us how to really live, we can assume that he and God considered his life to be abundant, ideal, in fact. I mean, isn't that a scary thought? See, in this world, Jesus didn't have power, prestige, popularity, success, good looks, or wealth. Yet, interestingly enough, these are the things that our society counts on when they tally up an abundant life. And we believe that that, we, we really believe these things are where happiness lies. Happiness lies. How interesting to see these two words side by side. Happiness lies. What an oxymoron. While we all experience happiness throughout our lives, the pursuit of happiness leads us astray many times from better things. Think about holding water in your hands. You must work hard at it, yet it really, only in a matter of time, it finds its way out anyway, and meanwhile, you've wasted your time trying to hold it in your hands. While there's nothing wrong with feeling good, God has much better goals for us than simply being happy. He realizes that there's no greater joy than being in sync with your own purpose. On the other hand, the thief, as referred to in John 10.10, realizes that if we pursue happiness without seeking out what's truly best for us, we might achieve temporary pleasure, but that only serves to create a bigger void in our lives. So we seek more and more of this brand of counterfeit happiness. The void must be continually fed as it becomes bigger and deeper, screaming loudly to be filled because we know no other happiness, yet we crave what we don't have. See, King Solomon, a man famed throughout history for his wisdom, put it this way. In Proverbs 21, verse 17, out of the Message Bible, he says, You're addicted to thrills. What an empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. I said to myself, let's go for it. Experience, experiment with pleasure. Have a great time. But there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. What do I think of the fun-filled life? Inane, insane. My verdict on the pursuit of happiness, who needs it? With the help of a bottle of wine and all the wisdom I could muster, I tried my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. I wanted to get a handle on anything useful, we mortals might do during the years we spend on this earth. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 through 3. See, countless people, countless numbers of people have chased after happiness through traditional means, you know, wealth, power, prestige, etc. Only to find it as elusive as an oasis in the desert. What happens, though, if we don't chase after happiness, but instead seek the only thing that leave us fulfilled rather than hungry for more? What if we could actually discover our true purpose? Well, let's look at the man who did. This is the abundant life of Jesus. So back to Jesus. He certainly didn't pursue happiness. He, he was a man, quote unquote, a man of sorrows. Yet no one could confidently claim that he left this earth unfulfilled 
anxious, hopeless, depressed, or angry. Many of the feelings that we battle on a daily basis, even though those were a part of his life, his circumstances were never easy. Yet his mind was generally at ease. How can this be? See, from a psychological standpoint, here's what we know. These are the things that would cause him to be at peace, at ease. Number one, he was free. Jesus was free because he understood his power to choose. God can set us free, but we have to choose to live freely and choose not to succumb to captivity. Jesus chose to use his free will to submit to God's will instead of his own self-will. But instead of this tying him down, it only gave him more freedom from the constraints of the world that the world would have placed on him. So secondly, he had a deep relationship with his creator. Enjoying a vertical relationship with God fueled his life, including his relationship with others. And thirdly, he had a deep and meaningful relationship with other humans. See, people cease to, th to thrive if they are disconnected from other people. Think about solitary confinement. See, there is, however, a responsibility on our part to keep these connections intact. As children, God's children, our parents' children, we're provided with relationships, but as we grow, we need to maintain them. See, Jesus, you saw him. He went after people. He didn't want to lose people. So essentially, if we want to be liked, be likable, right? Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his friends and even his enemies. And he died to himself daily as he related to people on earth, no matter how sad, angry, or tired he felt. He learned to die before he ever hung on the cross. He had a clear conscience, never betraying his own value system. So Jesus lived up to his original design. He was true to self. He was a perfect example of what humans were supposed to be like before Adam fell. He did not betray himself and try to be somebody else. He didn't try to be who would be popular, who would be revered, who would be admired. Fifthly, he realized his value was based solely on being loved by his father. See, Jesus didn't get his identity from how the world felt about him, his wealth, his good looks, or any of that. And we've talked about this before. Think of a $100 bill. If one were laying in a parking lot, would you pick it up? Well, how about if it was wadded up and covered with mud? What if it had blood on it? See, the vast majority of us wouldn't hesitate to claim the bill as our own and clean it up. It's the same with people. Our value is given to us when we're created, no matter where we've been, what we've been used for, how we've been mistreated, how filthy we've become, no one can change our worth. Just as a $100 bill is worth a $100 bill, regardless of its condition, its journey, or its use. It's $100. Jesus' understanding of this fact fueled his ministry. And lastly, maybe most importantly, he had meaning 
and purpose. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2.19 and Romans 6.16 says, We are all slaves to whatever masters us. Our most powerful master, slave driver, and captor is our own self-will. And as we come to the end of this segment, we're going to talk more about this whole idea of self-will, meaning and purpose in whatever masters us. And there's a great book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's by Viktor Frankl. It's most poignantly describes those prisoners who gave up life and had lost all hope for the future. These people in these concentration camps were the first to die, those who gave up hope and had no future and no value. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me in the next segment as we learn more about truly living, not walking dead. Welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. So appreciative that you're joining me. And if you're just tuning in, we are really looking at the book that I had written a couple of years ago called God Wants You Truly Living, Not Walking Dead. And just looking at some of these insights that this book offers about how to live truly what God is wanting us to have, and that is an abundant life. And so we were talking about the life of Jesus. And what was it about the life of Christ that made it abundant? Because he didn't pursue happiness, and he was really known as a man of sorrows. But nobody could say that his life was unfulfilled. And he did not leave this world anxious or hopeless or depressed or angry. And so what he had was, first of all, he was free. He understood the power of choice, and he had a deep relationship with his creator, He had deep and meaningful relationships with other humans because this is really how God made us. That's the design. He had a clear conscience. He never betrayed his own value system. And this is imperative when I talk to people about self-esteem, self-worth, is that betraying your own value system is one of the ways to bring so much condemnation on yourself and causes you not to trust yourself. So he was the perfect example of what humans were, what we're supposed to be like before Adam and Eve fell. He also realized his own value, and it was based solely on his identity in the Father and being loved by God. Now, we also left off in the last segment on the most important thing is that he had meaning and purpose. And we were reading out of Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, We are all slaves to whatever masters us. And our most powerful master, slave driver, and captor is our own self-will. And I was telling you about Viktor Frankl. He's actually a psychiatrist that had a groundbreaking theory. It's called logotheory, logotherapy. And it really revolutionized a lot of the therapeutic services that were given to people. And the way he found this insight is he was in a concentration camp, actually 13 different concentration camps. And he really describes this. He says very poignantly that the prisoners who gave up on life and had lost hope for any future were the first people to die. Nietzsche also says this best. He says, he who has a why to live, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any 
how. So if you have a why you want to live, you can endure how you are living. So Jesus was not held captive or hostage to his own self-will. And he used his free will as a mortal man to do God's will. Frankel's focus and concern was not why most died, but how anyone could even survive these concentration camps. And his Auschwitz experience really reinforced one of his key ideas. And that, life, and that is that life is not the quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or the quest for power, as Adler surmised, but the quest for meaning. And we saw this back in Ecclesiastes with King Solomon. The way we respond to suffering is what brings profound meaning to our lives. Jesus was able to endure the how he had to live because he knew why he was living. Jesus chose life by dying to self. See, we are prisoners to the wards of life down here. The only way to be free is through God, but we have to choose it. Jesus fulfilled the very thing he was uniquely created to do without apologizing. To revolutionize people's relationship with God, provide an opportunity for relationship if it wasn't already there. And he says, you know, this is what is really important. I don't think that we can claim that he was happy 100% of the time. But if he regretted his actions, then he could have tried to save his own life at any of the opportunities he was given, and there were many. But he showed none of the anxiety or the anger and all the rest of emotions that so many of us live with on a daily basis. To pass through life while accomplishing one's mission and leave it with no regrets, the life of Jesus was abundant. Abundant indeed. So what does that mean to you and me? How can we allow God to infuse us, infuse in us this abundant life that Jesus walked? Well, most of us, I would say, are willing and probably wanting to do all the above. However, Jesus took his life one step further in order to enjoy the abundant life he professed to offer. And what is the one thing Jesus did that had more power, offered more life, and continues to be the defining difference between him and any other person or entity? Well, he was willing to lose his life entirely to carry out his purpose. In fact, he knew he would. Jesus was willing to die for others and to be the final sacrifice that would save them from their sins in obedience to God. But he was also willing to die himself. And this is evidenced in the great temptation in the desert where we see that he denied himself his own comfort by refusing to turn stone into bread. Then denying his authority by refusing to jump from a high place calling angels to rescue him. And thirdly, resisting the opportunity for accomplishment by refusing to bow down to Satan. It's this dying to self that we're going to talk more about. And it's interesting to note that each of these temptations, had he given in, would have killed him in a sense. Maybe not physically, at least not yet. But it would have killed his purpose and the true being of who he is. Shorter, easier, faster, and less painful than actually his divinely ordained destiny. 
See, that's what Satan was offering him. That you, he was trying to tell him you could have your destiny in a sooner, faster, quicker, easier way if you give in to what I'm tempting you to do. But he didn't do it. He understood that in order to be what God created him to be, he had to do it the creator's way. And I'm going to say that one more time. He understood that in order to be what he was created to be, so in order for you to be who you are created to be, you have to do it the creator's way. He had to trust that his creator knew him to the very core and marrow of his being. And furthermore, he had to trust his father who created him, knew the best way, the eternal way, that fulfilled his own uniquely, individually, and authentically designed destiny, the Jesus way. It was ultimately the most abundant way. So we're coming up to a break, and we're going to look at a different thing. We're going to, we're going to for a moment, we're going to understand this word abundant and abundance. We're going to really talk about that in the next segment. And what does abundance really mean? Well, being more than enough without being excessive. Or think of brimming, bulging, bursting, chock full, crammed, fat, filled, full, jammed, loaded, packed, saturated, overfilled, overflowing, alive, bursting, and abounding. (laughs) I mean, this is only a glimpse of what God has in mind for us when he uses this word abundance to describe the life he came to give us. So if your life doesn't feel particularly abundant right now, something is holding you back. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. Join me again in the next segment. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host, and you're listening to Conversations with Cynthia on 1360 KPXQ Faith Talk Radio. So glad you joined me. And if you're just tuning in the first half hour, we were talking a lot about how to have an abundant life and that God wants you truly living and not walking dead. And this whole entire hour is out of the book that I had written, and it's called God Wants You Truly Living, Not Walking Dead. And so we were talking about God's way of abundance and what's the most abundant way. And I gave you a whole bunch of words in that last segment that described abundance, like brimming, bulging, bursting, overfilled, overflowing, alive, abounding, whatever. So this is only a glimpse of what God has in mind for us when he used that word abundance. So what you want to think about is if your life doesn't feel particularly abundant, something is holding you back. Now, God has a rule of always going first and setting the course. He is, quote unquote, the way, right? I mean, what a, what a good God that he doesn't say, hey, why don't you go check out that and come back and report to me what it's like? He always goes before us. And then he will be with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us, that we are not to be afraid or discouraged. So the example of him being the way is that he gave us this whole the way as sacrificing his own son, God himself incarnate, and dying so that we can have life. And that's what the fall did. 
the fall brought death, which means that we have to learn to die in order to live. If we take this prime act and example one step further, we see that something has to die in order to make room for life. Something has to die in order for the truly abundant life God is offering his people. So this brings us to this axiom that God inspired when I was um, asked to speak in East Africa on the story of Lazarus. So let us first understand what an axiom is. An axiom is like a premise or a starting point of reasoning. So it's a universally accepted principle, a self-evident truth that requires no proof. So with this understanding, this is how God inspired this following axiom as my message for this lecture in East Africa in Uganda. And it is, what has to die in order for you to live? And that's a powerful axiom to live by. What has to die in your life in order for you to truly live? What's the stuff that's killing you? What are you allowing into your life that's killing you? So when you think about the magnificence of Christ, he had to die so we would live. So he said to God, I'm willing to die so they may live. So what has to die in your life in order for you to live? See, dying is permanent. Death ends something that once was alive, even thriving. Yet not all things that live in us are meant to be there or a part of our purpose. So I'm thinking of things like addictions, unhealthy attitudes or resistance to change. Maybe, maybe you can think of a few more examples. See, they're stifling the part of us that's meant to live and thrive and fulfill God's plans for us. Think about that Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Prosper, hope, future, no harm. I mean, these words ring true for an abundant life, even if the world around us is less than ideal. But first comes the dying part. So there must be a dying process for us to truly live. And it's not something we can do on our own. However, we have this great God that has gone before us and knows the way. And he doesn't grow tired. And he understands that suffering through death produces life. And he also promises us comfort through the suffering. And he tells us this in Psalms 138, verse 8, that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. So there must be a dying process for us to truly live. So we say, all praise to God and the Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. We have plenty of hard times that come from following the Messiah but no more so than the good times of being his healing comfort. And we get a full measure of that too. On that 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, out of the Message Bible, and I love that. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before we know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times. So we can be there for that person as God was there for us. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. 
Join me in the last segment as we talk more about God wants you truly living, not walking dead. Well, thank you for joining me. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host, and you are listening to Conversations with Cynthia. So if you're just tuning in, we are talking about the fact that God wants you truly living and not walking dead. And that is a book I wrote a couple of years ago. And so I'm reading you some excerpts from that book, and I want to encourage you to, you can go to Amazon, you can download the book. Um, I've also recorded it audibly, so you can uh, download the audible version and just listen to me read the book to you. And so there's lots of ways to get the book, and I really encourage you to to really check that out because it is a great way of really reframing how you think about life and how you think about why we're here and what the point is. Because, see, there must be a dying process for us to truly live. And that is what helps us when we look at the life of Jesus. We look at Jesus in a new light. See, he lived an abundant life. And also, one that's meant to be an example. Not just of how to follow, to love and treat others, but also how to die to oneself to gain life. See, Jesus is the consummate servant leader. He leads the way by example. He doesn't just teach a concept. He walks it out fully and completely before asking or expecting us to walk the same path. He promises us in Psalms 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. So please note that shadows cannot happen without light, right? So when he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, remind yourself, There can't be shadows if there isn't light somewhere. So God shines while we're in dark places so that we may see the why and the how as well as the way. So I'll put it to you again. What has to die in order for you to live? What's killing you? What's the thing that's killing you? Are you dying to the wrong things? Are things killing you that you're not supposed to be dying to and then you're keeping alive stuff that you should be killing? right? So there are two types of death that need to happen in order to produce and to sustain a life. And this was really revolutionary for me when God revealed this to me. Two types of death. See, there's the death of a good thing in order to become the best thing. So the best thing is usually what the person is destined or created for. So what do I have to give up? What wants and you know, wonderful things might I have to die to in order to have what God really has planned for me. And then the second type of death is the death of the thing that's killing me. So what am I doing that's actually helping Satan? What am I doing that's actually taking from my abundant life? Because for a moment, I get feelings of abundance, but it leaves a big, gaping, black hole in my soul. So realize that if the first thing isn't allowed or encouraged to die, then it will most likely kill the real me, like a parasite. And the second type of death will assuredly kill me 
more quickly, like a predator. So if you look closely, you'll notice that you can see examples of both at various times in your life. And so what's your challenge? Well, to allow God to guide you through your own unique dying process so that you can come into the abundant life that God died for you to have. So think about that. Just as Jesus did, you'll need to use your free will to surrender your self-will to God's will. And I'm going to say that again. That was a great saying that God gave me, that I use my free will to surrender my self-will to God's will. So remember that in the Old Testament, when people didn't have the power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit, God resorted to death to accomplish his will. In fact, we can learn a lot from ancient traditions because many of which, really interestingly enough, haven't been commonly practiced since shortly after Jesus left the earth. Isn't that interesting? No more sacrifices after Jesus left. Animal sacrifices were given hourly, daily, monthly, yearly, all the time in the Old Testament to atone for the Jewish people's sins. Jesus came, however, as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of this world, a sacrifice that is complete, never needs to be repeated. So just as Jesus did, you and I need to use our free will to surrender our self-will to God's will. So the Jewish temple was destroyed in about 70 CE, and the Jewish people were still waiting for the Messiah to establish the temple in which many worship and offer sacrifices to God. So Christians, however, realize that just as these animal sacrifices are no longer necessary because we are the temple, so Christ lives in us. So we then can offer sacrifices of ourselves in our dying process. What does that mean? That means our will, our wishes, our desires, our way. Anything else that needs to die so the Lord can free us from sin and complete the good work within us. So we have to sacrifice daily to the Lord so that we may truly live. Every day I have to walk through my day looking at what am I going to say no to in order to be able to say yes to really good things. So what do I have to say no to? What has to die in me today? What attitude? Maybe it's about time. Maybe it's about what I want to eat. Maybe it's about how fast I want to drive. Maybe it's about, I don't know, I don't want to go to work. Whatever that is that I have to die to in that moment, that's the sacrifice that I make so that I get the abundant life. So we sacrifice daily to the Lord so that we might truly live. So the choice given to people in the Old Testament was to serve God, men, self, or Satan. In the New Testament and beyond, we choose to serve our self-will, Satan's will, or God's will. Now, he wants willing servants as he accomplishes his will in us. Now, this is not going to be comfortable, I'm telling you. There's nothing comfortable about the dying process and the change that inherently comes with it that feels natural. It's not, doesn't feel natural. It's new. We've never done it before. So to permanently rid your life of a habit, a thought process, a way of living, or your life's dream even, right? Take some immense courage. Not to mention 
the new habits or thought processes required to replace the ones that haven't been helpful. See, death here means putting an end to anything that's holding you back. Anything that's holding you back and dying then to your own will as a way to make room for God's will, to be able to hear what his will actually is versus tuning it out because you're worried that you don't want his will and you really want your way and you're hoping that you can convince him that your way is better than his way, right? We all do this. So during or after this type of dying, this type of dying process, you might be required to come to terms with significant life changes that you've been running from. To develop or relinquish a key relationship or to change how you view the world. To begin new customs or abolish old ones. Now see, this is not going to be comfortable, but it is well worth it. The difficulty in this process is that there's not a formula for achieving the abundant life. See, in the book that I wrote, I can explain what's happening. I can give you a lot of knowledge that can even lead to understanding. However, this does not automatically lead to wisdom and change. Instead, the only way out is through. So each of us has a unique growth and developmental process that must be embraced, explored, and walked out. This is the journey to becoming your own best version in any and every season of your life. And it has never been done before. Your version of you has never been here before. You are unique. You are the first time you've ever appeared on the planet. There's no replications of you. So you becoming the best version of you, well, it's never been done before. So the bad news is there's no bright and shiny three-step plan for your dying process <laughs> and subsequent abundant life. And personally, this makes me quite uncomfortable. I, you know, I, I kind of like to feel like I'm in control of a process and to understand what's happening, especially if it's happening to me. That's usually how I feel peace, even in uncertainty. I feel like I can handle anything if I can understand it, if I can make sense of it. But peace without understanding? That means trust. Ouch, man, that is a, that's a tough one for me. Trusting is a lot less comfortable than understanding. But be that as it may, I find that the Lord continuously desires to give me peace that passes all understanding, right? In other words, peace that's beyond anything I can comprehend. So striving for complete understanding of the Lord's work in me is not going to do me any good. See, this tells me that I must stop needing to understand absolutely everything in my life, but rather accept that God has a way. And furthermore, I must accept that I will probably not comprehend his way, nor will I be able to understand his way before it occurs. If I don't accept God's way, then I'm relegated to my way, which I have continuously proved really doesn't work very well, right? So it's kind of like going back to being a child. It's like, you know, our pets. We have a way with them. We learn them. We know what's best for them. And they kind of have to just wait or accept or trust. That's what children have done and do. So even in the dying process, the process of letting go of whatever is killing the real me. See, that feels really strange and unfamiliar, and it raises way more questions than it answers. But there's going to be some peace there. 
The other good news is that you don't have to go through this alone. See, just as Jesus relied fully on his relationship with God, his Father, you can too. Jesus spent long nights praying. He sought refuge by praying and opening his heart to God in solitary places. And you can too. And God will not disappoint. This is what I love when the psalmist says in 138, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. In the Message Bible version, it, just, it simply says, Don't quit on me now. So I think God might say the same to us. People, don't quit on me now. I'm not finished with the good work I have begun in you. So God's not quitting on us. And we don't want to quit on God. Now, I know it can be frustrating because we can't see the whole picture. But consider that one of the reasons for this is that God wants a relationship with us more than anything. And he wants to be a part of his unique plan and process that's going to work in you and me. He wants to be a part of the plan he has made. He wants to be a part of you, the one that he has made and wants to dwell with eternally. And what's more, he wants us to begin to know him on a deeper level. His plan is a journey of discovery. And it can only be uncovered and integrated through knowing something of our creator. In fact, when he reveals himself to you, you are revealed to yourself at the same time. In the process of knowing our creator, we begin to know ourselves. I like to put it like this. The more I see God in me, the more I see the real me. The person that God really had in mind when he created me. And as we know ourselves better, we're going to begin to see things that are contrary to his creation. So these things that we can't know until we have a deeper understanding of himself, of God himself. And this can't be done in a three-step process. But I encourage you to go to God with this. God bless you this week. Make sure you, you go to Amazon. You can get the book, the audible version there. Have a wonderful week, and I'll talk to you again in a week. And I'm praying for you. God bless you. To hear today's program again or to share it with someone else, please go online, CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. Follow Cynthia on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Cynthia Hyatt. Until next time, remember, be your own best version. Yeah.